Good evening, everyone. Thanks, Joel. Thank you, everyone. Has uh, anybody seen or got a copy of this book? Mary has. Joanne has. Joan has. Nigel has. Brilliant. Uh, Speeches that changed the world. I, I came across it a few years ago, and it records lots of incredible and inspiring speeches from a variety of people, such as uh, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, JFK. But the second speech found in this book is by Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you know which speech it is. And in our Essential Word series, uh, we're beginning to journey through the New Testament this evening, but we're not quite starting at the start with the birth of Jesus. We're going to keep that until December for obvious reasons. But we are going to start with Matthew's Gospel. And in the first four chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we are introduced to the person of Jesus. And we start off by reading about his background. And so it opens up with the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, to quote the first verse. And so we are immediately confronted with the reality that the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, has arrived or is about to arrive. And after tracing his family tree... Matthew then tells us about his birth and his baptism and his temptation, all in the space of four chapters. But in chapters 5, 6 and 7, we discover what he believes. The principles he stands for. And he offers a speech that really has changed and continues to change our world. A speech that has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And as you read it, and I'm sure many of us have, you can't help but be impressed and intrigued by it. But the real question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Should we admire it or live it? Should we frame it? Or let it become a framework for our lives. And down through the years of Christian history, as people have listened to it and engaged with it, these are the sorts of questions that they have asked and continue to ask. Here are some more questions. Is the sermon to be taken literally? Or is it just meant to make people think? Was it just relevant to that particular first century context? Or does it still apply today? Or does it actually only relate to some future time? Is it a standard for all of human life or just for the church? Is it for all Christians or only the committed, the hardcore? Those are all good questions. But as I understand it, and I'm sure many of you share this perspective, this is a sermon, or rather, it's a body of teaching given to the disciples to explain the kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring. The kind of kingdom that Jesus came to build in and through the lives of his followers. An altogether different kind of kingdom from what anyone expected. 
And therefore, this teaching is revolutionary. It is exciting, it is important, but there's no doubt that it's incredibly challenging. As the teaching of Jesus generally is, it stretches you. It unsettles you. It disturbs you. And as a result, there is a very real tendency to reduce it or to dilute it or to not take it too seriously. This uh, quote from John Alexander may be a bit extreme, but it makes a valid point. I can now see that Christianity is a religion that has been irreversibly distorted by its neglect of the actual life and teachings of Jesus. And I hope and pray we won't do that, despite the implications. I trust we will be a church that embraces the teaching of Jesus and actually lives out his kingdom values so that we model something positively different. The late, now, John Stott, writing about Matthew 5-7, to said this, If the church realistically accepted Jesus' standards and values as set forth in this sermon and lived by them, it would be the alternative society Jesus always intended it to be. And it would offer the world an authentic Christian counterculture. I hope we can be that kind of church. Now tonight we're not going to deal with the entire Sermon on the Mount. That would be impossible and crazy. But we are going to look at and consider the first part of it. The first probably ten verses of Matthew 5. That bit of the sermon that has come to be known as the Beatitudes. But before we stand and read them together, I want to pray. Or rather, I'd actually like to echo a prayer that James Greenwood offered on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. You see... I'm pretty sure most of us are familiar with these sayings. We've probably heard them countless times, but along with James, and this was the nature of his prayer on Wednesday night, I want to ask God to help us to hear the teaching of Jesus afresh. Almost as if we've never heard it before. So let me pray, and then we'll stand and read. God, as Joel has prayed, give us ears to hear. Help us to approach your teaching with humility. Help us not to reduce it or dilute it or try to explain what it didn't mean. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Let's stand together. It's page 968 for anybody who uh, needs a copy. It's a church by a pew Bible. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Grab a seat. Do you know, if you were hearing that for the first time, I I reckon there are two things that would immediately stand out. The first is the reoccurrence of that word blessed. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, according to some translations and paraphrases, it means happy. But I'm not sure that that totally or adequately captures the depth of what it means. Happiness, as most of us understand it, comes and goes. Happiness tends to be dependent on external circumstances. Happiness is a temporary condition profoundly impacted by our feelings. Affected by what's going on around us determines whether we're happy or unhappy. But to be blessed, well that's an altogether different reality. Much deeper, much richer. It's about having a deep sense of spiritual well-being. An inner contentment and joy that comes from being in harmony with God. And therefore those who live or embrace this teaching, they experience an intimate connection with Almighty God and they receive God's approval. You're blessed if you live like this. You hear the applause of heaven if you live like this. The second striking feature is the paradox. Virtually every statement appears to contradict itself. It sounds odd to say blessed are the poor. The mourners, the hungry, the thirsty. It doesn't make any logical sense. Or what about blessed are the persecuted? And therefore you quickly discern a radical, unconventional dimension to this teaching in this kingdom. But having recognised or highlighted those first couple of things, the real issue again is how do you see these eight statements? Warren Wearsby writes that most people think of the Beatitudes as a collection of idealistic sayings, beautiful to read but impossible to practice. But he goes on to urge Christians to recognise that the Beatitudes are in fact God's description of Christian character. The kind of character that then leads to right conduct. Here, if you like, is a blueprint for authentic Christianity. For Christ-centered spirituality. Here is a speck of how every Christian ought to live. Here, in stark terms, is the kind of attitude every disciple of Jesus Christ should reflect I know this phrase is a little bit twee, but there's a lot of truth in it. The Beatitudes describe the attitudes that ought to be in the believer's life. You see, here are values of kingdom dwellers. And whenever these are reflected and expressed in individual lives, the kingdom of God becomes visible. Heaven touches earth. And a watching world begins to sit up and take notice. And so as Jesus begins his so-called Sermon on the Mount, he confirms and he clarifies eight characteristics of people who belong to this alternative kingdom. And what I want to do in the time left is say something very briefly about each one. Now obviously I won't or can't say everything that could be said, but as we work our way through them, here's what I would invite you to do. 
I want you to consider your own personal response to each beatitude. Do these characterize your life? Do these characterize your life? So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit is about an attitude of humility before God. It's about recognizing that you need God. You know, so many people today are convinced they don't need God. That they can make it on their own. They can find answers and perspectives in a variety of other places. But the poor in spirit are different. They realize that without God, they are and they will remain spiritually bankrupt. As someone has helpfully commented, the poor in spirit acknowledge their spiritually destitute state. Now this is not about thinking less of yourself. What this is about being is real with yourself about your true condition before a holy God. I really like this quote from John Miller. Humility or poverty of spirit is not a matter of thinking low thoughts about ourselves. It's not a matter of groveling in the dust. It is simply a matter of knowing ourselves as we really are. And when we see ourselves as we really are, we will see that we are poor. And so, as this first beatitude says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is your starting place. Admitting your dependence upon the grace and mercy of God. Reaching that place of honest admission and acceptance of who you are. Is what blesses, or is what God blesses. And if you like, here is how you gain entry into the kingdom of heaven. God, I need you. I need your grace and mercy. It's not just about an initial recognition, which many of us have come to that place. It's about the need to accept that we constantly need God. That that I can't live without God. To quote another biblical truth, apart from God, I can do nothing. So the poor in spirit are those who know they need God and live with that constant awareness. And that is deeply countercultural. Have you come to that place where you realize your need of God? Secondly, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And this is not just about or primarily about being heartbroken as a result of grief. The main thrust of this beatitude relates to a mourning over sin. Personal sin. The sin of others and the impact of sin on our world. Jesus was saying, blessed are those who care. Who care about the presence of sin in our world. Blessed are those who are willing to adopt an attitude of repentance in response to the effects of sin in our individual lives, in the lives of those around us, in our communities, in our world, on our planet. But again, this is 
alternative thinking because we live in a world where language like this and reference to realities such as personal sin well they just jar they actually annoy some people when you talk like this frustrate them, bore them at best sin is trivialised at worst it's simply viewed as a non-issue today but not in the hearts and minds of kingdom dwellers sin matters It's got to. Kingdom people don't make light of sin. Those who belong to the kingdom should be like the Old Testament character Nehemiah, who whenever he realized the impact of sin, he fasted. He covered himself in ash and he cried his eyes out. Whenever Paul realized the sin in his life, he said, oh, what a wretched man I am. That's not popular thinking. It's not popular psychology and yet... It's a crucial recognition and mindset. Confession and repentance and a mourning over sin are key kingdom values. And those who mourn, those who take sin seriously are blessed. And they will be comforted. They will find forgiveness. And so what is your and my attitude towards sin this evening? The sin in our lives, the sin in the lives of others, the sin in our world. Thirdly, the meek. Blessed are the meek. Do you know meekness doesn't always get a great press? It's actually seen more as a vice than a virtue, a weakness rather than a strength. We live in a competitive dog eat dog world where you're encouraged to look after number one, walk over, manipulate, control others if necessary, because that's the way you get ahead today. But meekness challenges that selfish, me-first, pushy, aggressive mentality and offers a refreshing alternative attitude. Because those who are meek are considerate to others. Those who are meek are willing to serve others. They are gentle. They are kind. And in this beatitude, Jesus says, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. But for many people, that's a ridiculous idea. As the American singer Frank Zappa clearly believed in this song he wrote a number of years ago, the meek will inherit nothing. Here are some of the lyrics. Some take the Bible for what it's worth when it says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, I heard that some sheik has bought New Jersey last week and you suckers ain't getting nothing. (laughs) See, it's countercultural. As far as the world is concerned, the meek inherit nothing. It's the powerful. It's the people who walk over others. It's the people with the money. It's the people with the clout. They're the ones that will inherit the earth. Meekness or gentleness is a core kingdom value, but it clashes with, it contradicts, it confuses the ways of the world. Am I meek? Gentle. Kind. Considerate. Do I put others first? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst are strong words for Jesus to use. Because hunger and thirst speak of craving, desire. It's not about wants, it's about needs. Our bodies depend on food and drink. 
Without them, our physical lives suffer. And by linking these feelings and this imagery to righteousness, you can clearly sense what Jesus is saying and teaching and implying. Righteousness is vital to your spiritual life and its well-being and its growth. And therefore, you've got a hunger and thirst for it. You've got a long for it. You've got to recognize just how much you need it if you're going to survive. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness... Hunger and thirst for right living is one of the meanings of it. Who hunger and thirst for living as God intends. Where you have an insatiable appetite for doing the right thing. The God thing. Not the popular thing. Not even the natural thing. But the thing that pleases God. And hunger and thirst aren't just one-off feelings. They're daily experiences. And so this has got to be a constant craving. Where on a regular basis, we desire righteousness and holiness and Christ-likeness. What do you hunger and thirst for tonight? What do you hunger and thirst for? Blessed are the merciful. When someone hurts you, how do you respond? Very often we do everything within our power if we're honest to hurt them back. To get revenge. Because that is natural. That is the way of the world. But to show mercy is an alternative option and kingdom dwellers should be prone to it. Instead of retaliation, you reach out a hand of friendship. Doesn't make sense, I know, but then mercy rarely does. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Joseph's brothers didn't deserve mercy given what they had done for him, to him. And yet they got it. Saul, intent on killing David, didn't deserve mercy as he lay sleeping in that cave with David standing over him, and yet he got it. Those who hung an innocent man on a cross didn't deserve mercy, and yet Jesus prays that the Father would forgive them. As Christians, God has been incredibly merciful towards us. I deserve hell, but I get heaven. I deserve to be condemned, yet I receive forgiveness. And so to echo a future teaching of Jesus, I am called to be merciful, just as my Father is merciful. And there's another dimension to mercy in this beatitude. It's also about showing compassion towards the weak and the poor and those in need. And so how do you react when you've been hurt? And when you've been wronged, how do you react? How do I react? And how do I respond to the poor? I know I'm just skimming here. And blessed are the poor in heart. And as we all know and quickly realize from our reading of Scripture and the teaching of Jesus, the condition of your heart is critical. Why? Because it affects everything else you do. Guard your heart because it affects everything else you do and so whenever the bible talks about the heart it refers to the inner person including our mind and our will and our emotions the heart is the willing loving thinking center of each one of us and so the state of your heart impacts the choices you make the decisions you take the direction you go the thoughts you entertain the behavior you express all determined by the state of your heart and therefore to live for god 
And in his kingdom, you've got to desire a pure heart. A clean heart. Now, obviously, a pure heart's not a sinless heart. As the Bible, again, explicitly teaches, if you say you've no sin, you're deceiving yourself. The truth's not in you. So it's not about a sinless heart. A pure heart is a repentant heart. It's a heart that recognizes its need of cleansing, of forgiveness. And blessed are those who live with that desire. Who accept, yes, I make mistakes. But then they cry out to God for help. And cry out to God for renewal. They're like David who famously prayed on one occasion, create in me a clean heart because he was acutely aware of how sin had contaminated his life. And how it had affected his choices. And his actions. And his attitudes. To be pure in heart, you've got to reach that place of allowing God to search your heart to see if there's any offensive or wicked way within you. And then, having been searched... You respond accordingly. And do you know what it says in this beatitude? Those who do this will what? They'll see God. What an amazing prospect. How's your heart this evening? The bit that none of us can see. Blessed are the peacemakers. In a world of conflict and hostility, broken relationships, divided communities, fractured connections, the challenge to be a peacemaker is so real. Peacemakers are those who seek to bring harmony and reconciliation. They actively pursue it. Most of us love peace, want peace, but the real issue is are we willing and prepared to work for it? You see, peacemaking is active, never passive. Elsewhere in the Bible we're taught to seek peace and pursue it. 1 Peter 3.11 Or Hebrews 12.14 Make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Kingdom people are those who actively work to establish and promote peace. Where? In the home. On our streets. In our local churches. In our communities. Peacemakers are not divisive. They're not unnecessarily difficult and disruptive. Peacemakers don't hold grudges. They don't seek revenge. Peacemakers are, as the Beatitude says, children of God, who is the God of peace, who invites us into the ministry of reconciliation. Are you a peacemaker? Am I a peacemaker? How do I react? In all sorts of situations. And then blessed are the persecuted. And it's about being persecuted for doing what's right. It's not about being given a hard time because you're weird. It's about getting it in the neck and being mocked. And even lied about. Why? Because of Jesus. And your commitment to him. And there are obviously parts of this world where this beatitude is shockingly challenging because following Jesus actually means tangible suffering, imprisonment, even death. And in our context, the persecution may not be physical, but it can still be difficult to take. It can mean isolation and rejection and ridicule. It can mean being misunderstood, misrepresented, or accused of being intolerant and narrow-minded. All of which is hard to handle. But kingdom people still choose to stand up and speak out. Still do the right thing rather than the popular thing. 
And incredibly, as we later discover in the Sermon on the Mount, they also choose to pray for those who persecute them. I wonder is there someone persecuting you at the moment? Have you prayed for them? Are you praying for them? I need to stop. There is no doubt that the teaching of Jesus is provocative. And it is counter-cultural. But as he begins this speech that changed and changes the world, he paints a picture of an alternative upside-down kingdom where those who know their need of God, who lament sin, who consider others, who crave righteousness, who show mercy, who seek purity of heart, who work for peace, and who get persecuted because of following Jesus, they are blessed. And when you live like this, as I said at the start, the invisible becomes visible. Heaven touches earth. God's kingdom comes. And when we live like this, we enter, we enlarge, and we enjoy the kingdom of God.